listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now, but also what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. Have you ever heard of the Toyota Corolla theory of college? Well, it's the idea that we're creating cookie-cutter graduates through tertiary educations around the world, and there's a better way to do things. As a university lecturer himself, (laughs) Keith is the perfect person to explain this theory and whether we should shake things up. Keith, why is the college system in the US being compared to Japanese cars? (laughs) The argument uh, being advanced is an article from The Atlantic by Sanjay Sama and Luke Yakinto. They talk about university education in the United States as being very important. I totally agree with that. They make the point that the real lifetime earnings premium to college education has likely never been higher. So if you get a college education, Americans call it college because they're a little nervous about delusions of grandeur and calling it university. Mm -hmm. So Harvard, for example, calls itself the Harvard College. The rest of us would call it the university. Yeah. So... College and university are interchangeable terms. Mm -hmm. And so what they're saying here is that if you go to university, you stand a a much better chance of making more money if you're an American. That's the good news. The bad news is that the college education has become more and more expensive and there are increasing numbers of Americans who are just saying we can't afford to go and we also lack the motivation because we're not very happy about the prospects of being educated at a university. And so what we're seeing is that in the university situation, luckily where I am, on the Sydney campus of Boston University, we're not seeing this, but there is certainly a problem where you've got academic departments across the United States being hollowed out Mm. and underfunded. You've got the personal finances of graduate students and non-tenure track faculty members are precarious and students are fearful of losing their high stakes financial wager on a degree. In other words, they spend an awful lot of money getting a degree which then they can't use. Mm. Um, So these are some of the factors. So in the article, they look at comparing cars in the 1970s, 1980s. So you've got on the one hand the American gas guzzlers, those huge lumbering vehicles, Mm -hmm. which were very expensive to build and to operate, but were very widespread in the United States. And then you get the Toyota Corolla, the Japanese cars, being much more fuel efficient, much more nimble, easier to park. Mm-hmm. And the article is saying if American universities aren't careful, they're going to end up like American cars, large, cumbersome, and ultimately consumers not willing to buy them. And the consumers will go into, well, they would see the equivalent of Japanese cars being... And so that that's the Toyota Corolla theory <laughs> of education. And it's a warning to American universities that if you spend too much money just building up administration areas and you're not actually funding student education, you're going to end up losing your customers. The recent statistics, as discussed in the article, show enrolments have been decreasing since their peak back in 2010, down about 7%. So it's not a huge number, but it's, you know... It's, it's a, a trend. It's a trend right. there, yeah. What are people doing instead of getting a college degree? Well, one of my fears is that particularly if they're young males, they're not doing anything. Mm. They're sitting at home as losers. So that, that is a worry. 
I notice now in my classes that they're predominantly female and the young women are smart. Mm. So we've now got a whole new generation of young women coming through and we've really got to spend time now <laughs> focusing on the young males because they're disadvantaged mm. because they haven't received the same sort of special encouragement. So I think that one problem is that we're missing out on young males going into any sort of education. And the second one, which is what I encourage, is that people get a technical education. So when I look back a half century ago when I was selling books when I lived in Boston, I used to sell encyclopedias going door to door. And if I ever went to a home where the head of the household was a carpenter or a builder, I know that I'd be able to sell them a set of books. Even if they bought one set, they'd buy another set because they were just so anxious that children moved into the middle class, got a law degree or a, or a medicine degree. Mm. Now, if you go to the United States, there's a shortage of carpenters and builders <laughs> <laughs> and you've got a surplus of lawyers. Two-thirds of the world's lawyers live in the United States. Yeah. Education, again, seen as his way out of poverty and into a good high-status job. And I think that this has come at the cost of downplaying technical education or TAFE, technical and further education as we call it in this country, mm. and that we really ought to go back to educating more tradespeople because that's where there is a demand. And we shouldn't do it in such a way as to say, oh, well, you went to TAFE because you couldn't get into university. Mm. That's the problem. University is seen as being something that is worth going to, like the parents that I encountered 50 years ago. I bet. They never got to university. This was, they're going to go to university via their children. And yet, I don't think that's necessarily going to do them too much good in the long term, mm. those children. Education is certainly important. I'm, I'm not questioning that at all. But does it have to be a university education? That's the question. Do you think that, you know, this article's obviously talking about the US college system. Do you think it's comparable to how Australia's tertiary education system works? Well, in terms of the destruction of TAFE, absolutely. Mm. Um, probably we're worse off than the Americans, I don't know. I've not done any clear comparison. But we had a very good TAFE system here. Mm. And governments over the years have decided to privatise it. And we've ended up with all sorts of scams when you've got these fake colleges issuing bits of paper which are worthless. That is certainly a tragedy here. And I've noticed that the government is now doing more to encourage people to go to university. As I say, I'm in favour of people getting a university education. Look at me, I've got three PhDs, so mm. I'm obviously addicted to it. Mm -hmm. But I, I sometimes wonder whether just talking up the value of university education is distinct from being able to be educated in other ways. One of the things that this article touches on as an alternative is what are called micro-credentials. In other words, instead of enrolling for three or four years in a degree, that you then do an intensive course, a much shorter period, say a period of a few months, perhaps just weeks, where you're collecting a micro-credential. If you think back to what do you get out of a university education, which is unique to the university, it's an element of socialisation. Mm -hmm. If you graduate from a good university, you've got friends for life, so it's good for networking skills. If you were sitting at home doing something on the university, uh, on a computer, you wouldn't get that networking opportunity. And then obviously you get an education, but I think that you can actually learn a huge amount now thanks to things like TED Talks. Mm. One of my favourite examples, especially games I show in my class to warn them, is an eight, what she was then, I think, an eight-year-old Dutch singer in the Netherlands has got talent. Mm. Her older brother was doing music lessons mm -hmm. and she just got onto YouTube 
and learned how to sing, yep. including with an incredibly deep voice. Yeah, wow. And she is brilliant. Mm-hmm. So she got her education via the internet. The real thing you get with the university is a bit of paper from that university with the logo. Yeah. So you're paying thousands of dollars to buy a logo, really. Mm-hmm. That's what makes university education so unique and why people compete to get into university because I think a lot of the other components of a university education can now be acquired elsewhere. Something else brought up in this article is the stifling bureaucracy in universities. Talk us through some of that because, you know, as an outsider, I can understand a little bit, but it's such a problem inside, isn't it? It is. It's a huge problem and everybody complains about it. Nothing ever gets done, by the way, but everybody complains about it. They set up another committee to investigate. (laughs) (laughs) John Kenneth Galbraith, who was at Harvard, said that academic disputes are so intense because the rewards are so small. (laughs) (laughs) So you've got overemployed, overeducated, underemployed academics who just argue things out. Mm. And you end up with these huge disputes that can split university departments. You know, how do we teach English, which was a problem at Sydney? How do you teach psychology, which was a problem at the University of New South Wales? How do you teach philosophy? That was a problem at Sydney. Mm -hmm. So you do get these incredible disputes. Oh, how do you teach economics? I was involved in that one. (laughs) (laughs) And I was on the losing side. (laughs) So, you know, the academics can then just really just become so passionate and so intense. But to an outsider, they're just wondering what on earth is the debate all about? And so administration is certainly a real problem. You build on top of this. What I find fascinating is uh, one university, maybe applies to all of them, academics, no matter what level they're at, travel economy. Administrators, no matter what level they're at, always travel business. Mm -hmm. Doesn't seem right, does it? Because remember, it's the academics and their teaching and their research that represent the backbone of the university, not the administrators. Absolutely. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Thanks for your company this week as we delve deeper into the Toyota Corolla theory of college. Now, we're just talking about the bureaucracy. How does that also then impact how students are learning? Like, what is the flow-on effect to the classroom? I think the point they're making in the article is that it adds to too much uniformity. And we've certainly seen that in Australia since the mid-1980s, where we're trying to create a university system which is uniform, whereas, in fact, we perhaps should be giving opportunity for greater independent flourishing and allowing universities to have more say in how they should be governed rather than by bureaucrats in Canberra. Mm. One of the biggest scandals, which doesn't get enough publicity, is bibliometrics, which is how you measure an academic. How do you tell whether an academic is good? So if that person's students all get good results, that could be simply because the academic is generous with their marking, right? So that's not a good indication. Mm-hmm. So what the bureaucrats in Canberra devised was a system called bibliometrics, whereby you have to list all the articles that you've published or books that you've published, and then there's a weighting given to those. Generally speaking, the more obscure the journal, the higher the rating. Okay. So it's pretty soul-destroying. As an academic, you're writing stuff which hardly anybody will read. Mm. Whereas on the other hand, if you're an AJP Taylor, who's the person who got me interested in history, brilliant teacher at Oxford when it comes to history. Mm. They always used to put his lectures on very early in the morning in the hope that most undergraduates wouldn't be able to get to bed to (laughs) to come. They all did. Um, 
So A.J.P. Taylor was a brilliant television performer. He never was rewarded with a chair mm. because he was seen as too popular. You know, if you're speaking to the general public, there's obviously something wrong with you. You should only be speaking to your own peers. Mm. And this, I think, is a problem with universities, that they're rewarding people who write in obscure journals rather than people who are brilliant communicators talking to the general public. Mm, which doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to me. And it means that in, in, in the Australian context is that people, because they don't see academics at work, because the academics get penalised for being in the public domain, it means that they've become an easy target for politicians. Mm. So we've had all sorts of cutbacks on university expenditure, simply by politicians and bureaucrats who just know they can get away with cutting the expenditure because there's not much of a community base of support for university expenditure. Let's talk about money then. What do you think about the suggestion for more online learning to free up cash and resources at universities? I think that that would require a new way of how you go about doing the work, but I'm in favour of that. For me, one of the values of, say, a TED Talk, which runs on for about 20 minutes, is that if you're listening to a TED Talk and you don't quite get the point being made, you can stop the broadcast and then rewind it. That seems to me to be valuable. Whereas Mm. in a university context, if you miss something in a live lecture, then you've lost it. That's right. You may be able to ask a question to get clarification. But if you're following stuff online, and I'm online all the time, for foreign affairs mainly. Mm. I just find it so much more convenient than listening to people speaking live. So I think that there's a lot that could be done. I think also you've got the whole purpose of university for socialisation purposes. So I wouldn't want people sitting in their cubicles 24 hours a day doing a degree. Mm. I think that there should be opportunities. We should be much more imaginative about how we can bring people together for discussions. And also, of course, the use of of the internet to further those discussions on Zoom. So I think there are things that can be done to make greater use of the online world. It's an interesting point that if a surgeon from the Middle Ages were to return and was put in an operating theatre, the surgeon would not be able to understand what was going on. But if you brought an academic lecturer back from the Middle Ages (laughs) 500 years later and put them into a university setting, particularly Sydney, for Mm. example, with their lovely architecture, they would feel immediately at home (laughs) with the the chalk on the board or overhead illustrations, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've really got to find ways of incorporating technology into presentations to liven them up and to encourage people to do more thinking. How long has a university education been the preferred option for people who are finishing school? I think particularly since World War II. I think that before World War II, university education was simply not available to the masses. And then you get the big changes, including particularly under Whitlam, whereby people were able to get to university. And then the other big reform, which was in the mid-80s here in Australia, was the amalgamation into one unified system whereby the technical colleges, as they were called, the Institute of Technologies, etc., they were all given university status. I think that we should have allowed a much more varied system to develop and that people could have earned their own specialities without having to be called a university as such. As in kind of almost like trade-specific schools in a way? Well, you could have trade-specific or you could have research-specific institutes or whatever. Mm. Yeah, I guess I I didn't realise that that's how our universities in Australia kind of came to be for most of them. You know, 
We've talked about quite a few ideas, but are there any other ways we can improve higher education as it's currently offered? Well, obviously the greater use of technology Mm. and also the opportunity for people to return to education later in life. I think part of the problem is that we tend to take the view you get one shot Mm. at being educated. Whereas my view is that education is a lifelong activity. One of the greatest examples of this is the Open University in Great Britain, Mm. which was designed in the 1960s by the then Labor government to enable people who didn't get an opportunity to go to university to study using published material by the OU and also television programs were linked in. So you'd have to get up early in the morning to watch the TV programs. It's interesting, they doubled the number of undergraduates in one go through the Open University. And at one point, the Open University was the largest university publishing house in the world. Wow. The great achievement yeah. that was brought about by the OU. And it's immortalised in a great movie called Educating Rita, okay. which I, again, I encourage my students to see, to see the liberating power of education. It's about a young woman who's a hairdresser in the north of England. They don't disclose the actual location. She herself has got a Liverpudlian accent. And all the marvellous scenes are actually filmed in University College Dublin. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and it's about a woman who decides to get a, an open university degree It costs her her marriage, it alienates her from her family, but it opens her to a whole new lease of life because she can learn so much more about the world. That, for me, is is the value of education. It's a liberating experience. That's why I do a lot of adult education as well Mm. because education is what you do all the way up until you die. Yeah, you're right. We're always learning, aren't we? We are indeed. Thanks for that one, Keith. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr Keith Suda and me, Sasha Barber-Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nikolic.